You're listening to Preaching Source, a ministry of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary's School of Preaching. I'm your host, Professor Barry McCarty. Our guest on Preaching Source today is uh, one I've been looking forward to having uh, here. Uh, He's our colleague, uh, Dr. Josh Williams, who's professor of Old Testament here at Southwestern Seminary. Uh, Dr. Uh, Williams is a specialist in the book of Chronicles. He uh, did his doctoral dissertation uh, with John Salehammer, exploring the vocabulary of Chronicles in relation to kings. Uh, And he's also versed in the fields of hermeneutics, Old Testament theology, and uh, the Pentateuch. And that's going to be our subject today is preaching and the Pentateuch. So, Dr. Williams, welcome to Preaching Source. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Uh, When preaching the Pentateuch, my own experience and that of lots of other preachers is that we tend to gravitate toward the narratives at the beginning. Those, you know, and Bible reading programs, people love to start out. They get all the way through Genesis and then Exodus and then, whoops, here's Leviticus. And a lot of people lose steam there and a lot of preachers lose steam. So uh, why should uh, preachers expand their preaching and treatment of the Pentateuch to include those harder books as well? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, You know, for me, I am a bit of a forest and in the trees sort of guy. And I think in order to get a good sense of the Pentateuch as a whole, uh, both the, the narratives that are in the front, but also a sense of everything in the middle, the book of Leviticus, what's happening in Numbers, Deuteronomy, it really takes a look at the entire Pentateuch, the design of the whole thing, um, its purpose, its structure, and th- putting all of those pieces together you really get a better sense of what's happening even in the narratives. So, you know, just as a real small specific example, but as you're reading through Genesis 1 and working through each of the days and you come to the fourth day and the separate, well, the, the designation of the lights in the sky, the sun and the moon and the other lights, and then the, this little comment that they're to function as signs, signs for, uh, for the days and for the years and for the seasons. And often it's translated as seasons the, in Hebrew, the Moedim. And this little word, if you're thinking just in terms of Genesis and kind of the way in which our world works, you might think of summer, spring, fall, winter, seasons like that. But if you look forward into the legal material and look in the book of Leviticus, those Moedim are actually the festivals. They're the days that are set aside, or actually the periods, right, that are set aside, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for instance, Passover, those become the Moedim. And so it brings a little significance um, more than just being able to determine when it is and when to plant. It's there the, the, the actual stars in the sky are set up as signals for proper worship, to know when the Sabbath day is, to know when the Jubilee is, to know when the Moedim, when the festival days are. So I think in, when we neglect the other pieces, one of the side effects, at least in our interpretation of the Pentateuch, 
is that we can even miss out on a lot of what's happening in the early parts as well. Well, I, I love your specific illustration there. That that's something that will really preach when you're you're preaching the uh, creation story. Uh, are there any cautions that you would have for preachers who who want to to preach uh, these other harder sections of the Pentateuch? Yeah. So uh, when looking at right, because everybody does great through Genesis, you get through Exodus until you get to about the Tabernacle instructions, which the first time through is interesting, but then. The second time, they actually are building it, and it sounds like the same thing, and then into Leviticus. Yeah, so one of the, one of the temptations, obviously probably the most significant temptation, is in this case not so much the rush to application, uh, but the rush to Jesus, if I could put it that way, um, without really thinking through or considering what role the particular law has within the Pentateuch. And I think that the, the rush to, uh, to try to derive some deeper spiritual meaning beyond what the text is getting at, this is one of those cautions that you just have to be aware of. Um, yeah, I mean, my own, my own take on a lot of what's happening in the Pentateuch and in the legal material in particular Right? It's really difficult. I mean, there are places where it's you're dealing with texts that are they're ancient. Um, they're quite a bit older. The culture has changed. Some of our um, our sensi- cultural sensitivities are different. Um, some things that uh, were people were accustomed to in the ancient world aren't we're really not accustomed to in the contemporary world. And sometimes that can lead individuals to either stay away from those texts or really work hard to, if I can say this, apologize for them. Um, To, you know, "Eh, this isn't really what it's getting at. It's not actually what it seems like. It's much more palatable um, than we might think it is. And I think... You know, either one of those, either taking it and kind of allegorizing, looking for spiritual truth that's not embedded in the text, but kind of seeing it as a symbol or a signal to talk about something other than what the text is really driving at. And then on the other side, to treat them as kind of apologizing for them or not sitting with them long enough to let them really do the work that they do in um, providing this picture, this comprehensive picture of a holy and just God who takes sin really seriously. And thinking of that, seeing how that plays out in a particular historical and social and cultural context. Mm. I love your term sitting with the text and sitting with the people in the text. Uh, let me let me just uh, pick a specific thing that, that I, I've had to deal with in because one of my favorite passages to preach is about Jacob's children in in Genesis 29 and 30 and, and how the 12 tribes came to be. And also the, it's a great uh, lesson of how God deals with messy families and it dis- gives his mercy. Uh, but for a modern audience, one of the things that I, I, I'm 
really careful about and, and actually still struggle a little bit with is explaining, okay, here's a guy who has two wives. You know, he's married to these two sisters. And, uh, and, and not only does he have two wives, but he also has, you know, children by their two handmaids. So you have this surrogacy thing going on. How do you explain that to modern Christian people when you're dealing with a text like that? What do you, you know, to, cause you don't want to hold that up as an example, plural marriage and surrogacy, but how do, how do you explain that to people in a modern Christian context yeah, in your average question. Baptist church? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> how would you deal with that? Yeah. Well, I think it's, uh, you know, it's a good question. One thing I would say is, you know, there's actually a pretty helpful book written by Gordon Wenham called Story as Torah, and he looks at what he argues is that in the Pentateuch, it's not the legal material itself in the Pentateuch that provides us kind of the ideal ethical and moral examples, uh, but it's within certain places in the narrative that narratives actually give us certain images, and then the narrative will confirm that that image is the ideal. So, for instance, with marriage, you have in Genesis, you have all of these individuals, right? I mean, Abraham does the same thing. They have uh, more than one wife, and the law doesn't condemn it. But, Wenham points out, but in the creation account, and in Genesis 2, that the ideal that is set up is the ideal of one man, one woman, and then the narrative confirms that in many ways by showing, for instance, with Jacob, that this creates an enormous mess. Um, and that's, that's part of the point of the story. It's like, this is an enormous mess. It's incredibly complicated. It's far more difficult than it should be. There's lots of jealousy and rivalry. And yet, in the midst of all that, God's still able to do. He's still able to follow through on his plan. But I think that's another one of those themes that Genesis is trying to pick up on. And so, in this case, it is a little bit of, okay, I recognize it's not how we do it today. And I recognize that actually the Bible doesn't present this as the ideal, but that's actually part of the point that's being made, is that um, because of this situation, even though it was culturally acceptable, it's still not what God has in mind as the idea, and there are consequences for it mm. that you see even in the text. That's a, that's a great answer. Uh, preachers, uh, uh, every preacher, when, uh, when he comes to a sermon, when he comes to a text, and especially when he is wrapping up a text or presenting a text, he, he wants to make a relevant application. Uh, and in some of the Pentateuch, uh, you know, making irrelevant applications, we sometimes run the danger of allegorizing or spiritualizing something that uh, just, you know, there. well, hey, great application is just not an application from this text. Uh, it, any guidance that you could give us on, on avoiding, uh, making it relevant without uh, allegorizing it or, or violating the, the original text? Yeah. So one thing I do think is, for me, really important is to see each piece in light of the whole. And um, if I can just say in terms of the whole, so one of the things that I think is important in thinking about the Pentateuch is what is its purpose, what is its function, what was it designed to do, and then uh, 
how do each of the pieces fit into that? So uh, many argue that really what the Pentateuch is trying to do, it's a constitution of ancient Israel, and it lays out the parameters that are going to guide the relationship between God and his people Israel. And so the focus of the entire Pentateuch becomes on Israel and its origin. And although I certainly understand that approach to the Pentateuch, the one thing that I have always found to be a struggle is that it doesn't really do much with Genesis 1 through 11. That if the whole thing is directed towards Israel, then it makes sense if you start in Genesis 12. But it's hard to to really factor in or figure in what's happening in the preceding verses because they don't point towards Israel. I mean, they're not headed that way, so to speak. And so I think that's actually the way that I approach the Pentateuch is it's that the, the Pentateuch itself is not just for Israel. That And this is important because it helps with the legal material. So does the Pentateuch, is one of the purposes of the Pentateuch to teach the law to Israel, or is the purpose of the Pentateuch to teach about the law to Israel? And I would argue that the Pentateuch is really designed to teach about the law. And one of the things that it teaches and uh, you can see this in the larger structure of the book, you have this, this expectation. So the way that I kind of set it up, that there are basically three major movements, if you will, in the Pentateuch, and the first with creation, and, and then the fall. So you have God's preparation of a good land that is perfectly suited for human beings to live and flourish in, and then mankind, through disobedience to his commandment, they forfeit that good place, a place of life and blessing, of belonging, the whole nine yards, right? They've got life, land, and blessing, you know, to summarize it. And part of what the Pentateuch is then doing is it's forecasting the the resolution to this problem, that there's that there is this journey, this desire to come back, to get back to a land that God has prepared, a land, life, land, and blessing, which is what Deuteronomy talks a lot about, right? If you will, I'm giving you this land, the land that I prepared that you don't have to plant, you don't have to build, you just go into it, and it's all ready for you. And in there, is life, and in there is the land, and in there is blessing. All you have to do is obey my commandment. So this, the, the picture in Deuteronomy looks a lot like the picture in the garden in the beginning. But along the way, one of the, uh, kind of the next step, or where the Pentateuch uh, presents a possible solution, is at Sinai that once the people come and they, they reach Sinai, there is this moment, this invitation that God gives in Exodus 19. And it appears that in this law, they will actually be able to retrieve. I mean, this is a little bit of what it sounds like Deuteronomy is getting at, right? If you just obey my law, then you'll have all these things that were lost in the garden. 
And I think that there's even within, you know, even Leviticus 18, where you have this, those who, um, those who keep the law shall live by it. And it seems as though the Pentateuch's kind of projecting this. Our expectation is building that this is going to be the answer to the problem that we've seen develop through the early parts. And then you get to the time where they move away from Sinai, so in Numbers 10, and they do exactly what they're supposed to do. They keep the charge of the Lord is actually how it says it. So when the cloud moves, they move. When it stays, they stay. And wherever it goes, they go. Wherever it stays, they stay. And there, so there's already this kind of anticipation. Oh, it seems to be working. It's like it's working. And then immediately following that, they send out the spies. They spy out the land. They come back. And the way in which it puts it, right, after they give this report that, yeah, it's a good land, but there's no way we can take it. Then the Lord responds by saying, right, how long must I put up with these people? How long will they not believe me? And that, I think, is a key, it's really a key passage because it moves away from law as the answer to faith as the answer. And this, again, then is repeated with Moses and Aaron, where there's the striking of the rock and you know, there's lots of ambiguity in that particular passage. Does Moses disobey God? Is he supposed to speak to the rock? That's what God said. Does he treat the people with anger? Is that part of the reason that he's judged? But in the text, what God actually says is, because you did not trust me, because you did not believe in me in order to treat me as holy before the people, therefore you don't get to enter the promised land. So I think in terms of the Pentateuch as a whole, there is this larger um, goal of contrasting law and faith, and the way that although law is good and it shows us God's character, it's not actually the answer for Israel. And tying it into creation in the beginning, it's not really the answer for any of mankind, that confidence, belief, faith in God is the answer to, it's the way in which we retrieve what has been lost in the garden. Wow. Uh, one of our maxims in the school of preaching is that content is king, but context is queen. Uh, that it, it, to deal with the text uh, rightly, uh, you need to look at the immediate context and then the larger context and then the largest context. And you, boy, that, 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 You've just given a wonderful uh, summary uh, of the whole context of the Pentateuch and how it, you've you've given the big idea that the preacher needs to keep in mind when he's preaching from any part of it. That's beautiful. Thank you. Um, what resources would you recommend for preachers who want to better understand how to preach the Pentateuch? Yes, well, um, I can start, and this may sound a little... Uh, Right, shameless self-promotion here, but if you want my own take on, I, uh, several years ago, I guess it was um, 2009, the Southwestern Journal published a little article where I, I tried to do this, so it's my attempt, it's called The Message of the Pentateuch, and I at least tried to give kind of the large, the big idea, the overall design, and um, hopefully that 
might be a resource that would be helpful. I know for my for myself in understanding the Pentateuch, both in its details and the big picture, uh, my supervisor, John Selhammer, wrote a, a commentary on the Pentateuch called The Pentateuch is Narrative. And it's really a goldmine. The first, its introduction, first 120 pages or so, are really, have been really instrumental for me in understanding the Pentateuch and in thinking through the way in which it creates certain patterns, um, what he calls narrative typologies, and how those um, can be used even within the text and how they develop beyond the Pentateuch, further into the Old Testament, further into the New. Um, there are some handbooks. There's a handbook on the Pentateuch by Victor Hamilton, which is really helpful. And then I have found the Knack series on the Pentateuch. Those commentaries are really fantastic. They're really, really, really good. So, mm. Our guest today on Preaching Source has been uh, Dr. Joshua Williams, a professor of Old Testament here at Southwestern Seminary, and we've been talking about preaching and the Pentateuch. Uh, Dr. Williams, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. My pleasure.